Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I'm based in private practice in Harley Street, London in the United Kingdom. And I'm delighted now to be joined by Zena Hitz, who's uh, published a recent book, uh, a lovely book entitled Lost in Thought. The subtitle is The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Zena Hitz is a tutor in the Great Books Programme at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, where she also lives. She has a PhD in Ancient Philosophy from Princeton University and studies and teaches across the liberal arts. Her website is xenahitz.net and the Twitter account is the at symbol Zena Hitz. So Zena, many thanks indeed for um, uh, granting us this interview and, and talking to us about this wonderful, wonderful book uh, you've written. So the book begins with a kind of autobiographical uh, account of your personal journey into the world of learning, into the life of learning, into becoming an academic. And then, uh, interestingly and perhaps surprisingly, um, because clearly you were very good at being an academic, uh, you become increasingly disillusioned with the academic life. And uh, and one of the bits that was particularly arresting in the book is you capture quite candidly the uh, intellectual point scoring that, that occurs in the academic world, the hyper-competitiveness of it and, and the pedantry of it. And in the end, what appears to be a sense of which you, you come to a conclusion that actually uh, elite academic institutions are no longer devoted to the pursuit of genuine learning or the intellectual life. So could you say a bit about that? Uh, I'd be happy to, and I'm delighted to be here, Raj. So thanks so much for inviting me. As you say, I uh, was a childhood bookworm. Uh, I was, in that sense, a sort of natural uh, intellectual. Uh, I went to a wonderful liberal arts college where I teach now. Uh, it was much more sort of broad and humanistic and saw learning as a way of living a better life. And then I went to graduate school, and I think that was where it began, although I also worked as a research academic for some time. And I, I think the way you put it is not quite how I would put it. So what was definitely true was that there was a climate of competition and point scoring, uh, especially in my field and especially in the departments I was in. So one of the stories I relate is, you know, this, this sense that if you had, say, an outside speaker, a lecturer coming in from another university, the the game was always to find the most humiliating and devastating objection. You know, if you could do that, then you really... And it wasn't just... There's a learning element, of course. You, you um, Objections help you think. But there was a sense that the cruelty was somehow for its own sake and a form of competition. So that was definitely a part of the environments I was in. And it was definitely something that appealed to me. So I am an extremely competitive, ambitious person by nature. So I took to this kind of competition like a fish to water. And I wouldn't say that universities are wholly dedicated to this or somehow that learning has died there. It's just uh, learning for its own sake is just not quite the main purpose. It happens by accident. And... I think that that's a bad thing. I think it should be pursued more intentionally and we should be more aware of the, the obstacles that get in its way. But you, be, you became disillusioned with the notion that the, the pursuit of the intellectual life could occur in universities. And, and in fact, you abandoned, I think, the academic world for a while. That, that's true. So yes, I forgot that piece of biography. I got distracted by thinking about competition. Yes. So I, I did. I quit academia for a time. I joined a, a Catholic religious community in uh, rural Canada. I lived there for three years and then I, I discerned out and 
came back to my uh, liberal arts college where I was an undergraduate, which is a, a teaching college, not so much a research institution. So it the disillusionment was partly uh, something in myself. That is, I was doing what I was doing for the wrong reasons. And it was partly that I didn't feel that, I guess I would put it this way, the institutions I was in and had come from didn't support me in pursuing learning for its own sake. It's not that they prevented it or that it was forbidden or that it never happened, but it's not supported. It's not um, structured in such a way as to make it easy. And that's especially true uh, in the classroom, uh, in the, the classrooms I was in where uh, now it's the American system, so it's a bit different, but you know, you, you get these sort of PowerPoint bullet points that you launch out over the lecture hall and the students are supposed to spit them back out and then you're supposed to give them a, a you know, above average grade. And that didn't strike me as seeing a way of transmitting to young people the spirit of learning for its own sake. So I was partly disillusioned with teaching and the kind of teaching I was doing. And I didn't feel supported in trying to learn for its own sake. But I wasn't quite sure how to do it. Uh, so I, I, I left and then, uh, then decided to come back. But one of the things you're also talking about in the book is how difficult the pursuit of the intellectual life is. So even if you wind up at an elite educational institution, like a top university, it's still actually mm. difficult, um, even when you're meant to be in an environment that actually supports learning. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what you mean by the word learning, I think. But but you also account in the book for several people who abandoned middle class life and went and worked in factories and so on yeah, that's... Uh, in, in an attempt to engage with the world in an intellectual sense. But even they found that uh, as, as a mode of being very difficult. Could you say a bit about that? Uh, yes. So I, I can say a bit about, I hear two questions actually. One is why is learning for its own sake so difficult? Why is true intellectual life so difficult? And the other is about this uh, this Simone Weil is the thinker who uh, is most mm, famous yes. for abandoning abandoning academia and uh, trying to work in a factory at which she fails uh, in a, a somewhat funny, also tragic way. So uh, what Simone Weil felt, and which also I felt, was that universities felt, and they still feel, uh, disconnected from a broader community. So there's a sense in which um, not just are you competitive academically, but you're competitive socially. You found a little niche of pseudo upper class uh, way of life, and you can sort of hang out there and be cozy and forget your your humble origins. Uh, and that was definitely part of what alienated me, and definitely what what Simone Weil was reacting against. So that's that's difficult. the The difficulty I think in learning for its own sake is that the way I put it in the book, we have we're complicated creatures. Uh, our desires are not always transparent to us, and we have a kind of default mode. The default mode is usually comfort, convenience, status, distraction, going along with what everyone else is doing. And to really learn for its own sake, unless you're in a very uh, special environment where it's cultivated, learning for its own sake requires some discipline to get past all of that and to really engage a, uh, a question seriously and deeply and to follow it as far as it goes. You need to fight things in yourself for that to happen. An institution can help you fight those things uh, if it's if it's set up properly. But many of our institutions for higher learning just aren't set up that way. 
So let's talk a bit more about that. So, I mean, academics increasingly um, uh, uh, in these institutions, I mean, first thing to say is universities have basically become businesses. Um, they're yeah. trying to make money rather than what they were meant to be about, which is the, the pursuit of truth, no matter how dangerous um, or fraught that was. So they become businesses. That's one critique. The other critique is academics have become paper machines. They've got to generate publications <laughs> in order to secure tenure and keep their jobs. Whether the papers are actually meaningful <laughs> is, is another matter altogether. So so there's no there's no benefit in producing meaningful work. It's just the quantity and, and it's the tyranny of metrics. You, you have to publish a certain number of papers. You've got to be in the kind of journals that have um, a high impact factor, etc, etc. So the tyranny the metrics means genuine intellectual thought is being abandoned then the students turn up and they just want a, a degree as a ticket to a job at Goldman Sachs they're not mm -hmm. really interested in learning for its own sake so the surprising thing to a lot of people would be that the bricks and mortars where they think uh, are the buildings where are enshrined the notion of the of the intellectual life are uh, you are saying do not take it for granted when you turn up at these places you are going to engage in the intellectual life in fact that that's not entirely the case so any any response to that oh yes so i absolutely agree so the the way i would put the first point about universities becoming businesses it's a broader phenomenon of institutions which are meant to be either public or non-profit in some way that is, they're meant to be supported by taxes or by philanthropy. Uh, and you do that because these are things which won't survive in the market. That's the old school traditional way of thinking about education and any other number of things. Whereas the idea is if something makes a profit, then it belongs out in the market uh, and it can, it can sink or swim with all the other businesses. But you have instead this mixture where Universities are somehow supposed to be businesses, but they also are still taking tax money or still taking philanthropy. And it's uh, very confused and I think really very bad. And part of that is that we get all the metrics from the business world. Everything has to be measurable. Now, we, we're sort of free from metrics at the, the school I teach at. It's kind of a unique place. Uh, but we know at the end of every semester and every year, how, as any teacher does, how much what we're doing with our students matters. It can't be quantified. It's ridiculous to try to quantify it. And you're quite right that uh, publication, uh, while it's worthy to some extent, is it's been so incentivized that it's it's uh, producing reams of paper or PDFs, as the case may be, and so much that no one can read it. And that makes it very difficult for, uh, it takes time and energy away from teaching, away from reflecting, away from all of the places where ordinary intellectual life takes place. And yes, it does end up with a surprising result. And that's part of the point of my book. It's appropriate that they safeguard learning for its own sake. As I say, that's why we have this nonprofit structure or this state supported structure to begin with. Uh, but as often happens, they get corrupted in such a way that in fact, ordinary people reading novels, um, studying birds, they often have uh, more authentic intellectual lives than academics do. And so a part of the point of my book is to honor that spirit, to honor the ordinary people, the working people who have intellectual lives, 
and uh, don't necessarily get the credit for it or, or credit themselves for it. Well, I think one of the really powerful things about your book is to disentangle what it really is to pursue the intellectual life as opposed to the trappings. So um, using big words, showing off, etc., etc., <laughs> ha- having a degree from an elite Ivy League uh, institution, all these things that everyone else thinks is a sign that you are a learned person or educated person, you are casting great doubt as to whether any of that means anything. And instead, the very basic thing, do you read books or do you think hard about stuff? And do you mm-hmm. engage in difficulty in terms of, are you interested and curious about the world? And and do you pursue learning? In other words, that essence of that thing is not captured by a diploma hanging on the wall anymore. Um, and is not captured by the, your ability to use big words or be impressive in conversation. You're saying that actually, I think you're trying to democratize or make it more democratic, the notion that anyone can be learned. It's it's more about an attitude of mind. And and you're trying to uh, make it more a democratic notion that anyone can take part of this. Whereas before it's seen as slightly elitist, the the word intellectual is seen as an elitist thing. So that's what I I love about your book. But what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, no, that's helpful. Uh, I think the way I'd put it is to say that, especially in Britain, actually, uh, there's a long tradition. It's nothing new to say that intellectual life is democratic. There's a long tradition of working people in the UK uh, forming associations and reading books together and teaching each other things uh, and studying Shakespeare and reading poetry. Uh, it's stronger than it is in the US, to be honest, although we have our own tradition. So that's been going on for centuries. Um And what I think might have been more the case in the past, although maybe it was never true, it's easy to be nostalgic, but what may have been true in the past is that uh, the universities safeguarded that. That is, they had their professional modes of intellectual life, which can go to, in some ways, deeper levels, more specialized levels, more in-depth study of something. And they can safeguard the books and the texts and the, the plays that ordinary people then indulge in for their uh, for their own intellectual work. And that's, I think, w- the kind of world I'd like to live in, is one where the point of a university was to uh, secure for ordinary people uh, a source, a set of resources for uh, study and learning and thinking hard and all of those things, um, because they make human beings happy. They're part of a good life. But the, but the other thing about your book, I, which I think is very helpful, is that a lot of people may feel if they haven't been to an elite educational institution or haven't got a very high grade in a degree or, did, you know, have not got a glittering right. postgraduate career and they have, let's say, they work as a bus conductor or something like that. What you're kind of saying is you have not missed the boat. You are right. able to to learn and be and, and get get involved in the world of, of learning and education at any stage in your life. You do not have to feel because one of the things the education um, system does, it makes you feel it makes a lot of people feel failures educationally. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, they don't having been spit, spit out at the end of the system, they never return to trying to learn. And you're, you're kind of saying anyone can be an intellectual. Uh, that is what I'm saying. Exactly what I'm saying. I couldn't have put it better myself. I I'm I'm always uh, horrified when I meet people, ordinary people of the kind you're describing, people who work as bus conductors or any old kind of work. They find out, say, that I teach in a at a university, and instantly, oh, I could never, I could never. All I do is read novels, and or all I do is my amateur um, study of insects. I don't, I could never, and I I find that distressing because. Uh, it, it's often true that what ordinary people are doing 
when they study or think or look at things, they're often doing something more authentic than what a professional is doing. Not always, but often. Um, and professionals, in a way, ironically, because it's so incentivized for them, because they get uh, paid and they get all of this status and they're sort of build their whole lives around it and their whole sense of themselves around it, it's actually, that's kind of the vehicle where corruption comes in. And it's easier to be authentic and to learn for its own sake when you don't uh, get any perks from it. Uh, that's the funny thing. Now, the other thing that's interesting about your book is you 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 were on this journey, you you went into the academic, uh, academic life, then you became troubled by what you saw around you. Now, universities are full of these people beavering away doing this stuff which you question as to whether they really are pursuing yeah. intellectual life. They don't seem troubled by it. They're just carrying on conforming to what they... You, you seem you, relatively unusual. Um, and, and I had this experience when I um, was m more involved in university teaching that I would uh, be teaching medical students and my, my first tutorial with the, with the ones who just arrived for the first time, they turned up expecting, because it was psychiatry, uh, a, a tutorial on schizophrenia, let's say. And my opening gambit would be to say to them, what is it to be an educated person? What is the essence of education? If you're at a middle class dinner party and you're sitting next to someone, how do you decide that they're an educated person? Is it that they've been to an elite educational institution? Is it the, the, their vocabulary? What is it? So um, having posed this question, there'd be a very long silence. And then one of the cockier medical students would speak up and say, um, Dr. Pasord, Dr. Pasord, um, is this going to be in the exam? Because if it isn't, <laughs> why, why are we wasting our time? So um, the, the notion, again, that students have that it's all about a grade and exam is what they're there for. Again, very few people seem troubled by the notion that edu education is a hell of a lot more than just a grade and exam, which, of course, what I was trying to get through to them. Uh, but, you know, um, one in the, event, in the end gave up because it's not just the academics, but the students arriving, um, despite the fact they have arrived with, with elite grades, actually seem to miss the point of what an education is. So I suppose it hasn't quite been my experience that academics are untroubled. Most One of the other reasons I wrote the book, I wrote it in part for the ordinary intellectual who I wanted to honor and affirm and encourage. Uh, I also wrote it for disaffected academics of whom there are many, many such people. So I, you know, because I spent a long time in research academia, I have many friends um, at different institutions in different parts of the world. And all of them struggle with the kinds of things that I struggle with. Uh, so I, and the students too, um, I often, I've been giving talks to college students uh, for a lecture bureau the last few years. And I meet students who are struggling with these same questions. Now, they're partly struggling because uh, the, the culture that surrounds universities, and that's the culture of the parents and the culture of the broader society, it's very materialistic. So, you know, people don't even know what they're missing. You know, it's not just that they're, uh, you know, too interested in grades or too interested in working for Goldman Sachs. It's that they don't even know that there's anything else. Uh, but there are students as well as faculty who struggle with this. And part of what I wanted to help them do is to uh, reflect on on what they're doing and what might be able to change wherever they are uh, in order to uh, bring that kind of education more to the fore. But I feel you. I know what you're talking about. There are contexts where if you try to ask a question like, what does it mean to be an educated person, which is a terrific question, uh, 
then you know your students will be floored they're not expecting it that's because no one in any other classroom is doing that right so you need to have a broader culture where it's taken for granted that you'll ask big open-ended questions because you want your students to think about things and to become independent free beings and not just to be uh cogs in some kind of machine uh so i i anyway i hear very much what you're saying about the the state of the university but i think that more people are discontent than you might think if you talk to them privately they at least to me they confess all kinds of doubts and worries and uh discontents Okay, so we've been talking a little bit about the intellectual life and what and learning for its own sake in education, but we haven't really delved into it. And, and, and one of the reasons I think your book is so great is your book takes time to try to expand and and and, and engage you. What what does that mean? What, what what does it mean to engage with the intellectual life? And it's not an easy answer, but let's just try to unpack that a bit. My sense is that what you're referring to is a notion of being curious about the world um and also a notion of trying to engage in study serious study but serious study doesn't mean you have to be in an academic university library but to pursue study in some sense you could be browsing the internet but you are trying in a serious sense to gain depth into a subject and, and journeying into the subject so it's persistence uh, with learning a persistence in the face of difficulty etc etc could you say a little bit about what, what it is at the essence of the intellectual life. But one of the other things is it's, it's an introverted experience to some extent. It requires solitude and quietness and concentration, which in increasingly distractible world are difficult. But could you say a little bit about what the essence of the intellectual life is? So I think what one of the things I say is that uh, it is, as you said, uh, a way of withdrawing from the world. It's a form of inwardness and it's an inner life. So it's withdrawn in some sense from the world of competition uh, and status and making money and getting along with others uh, for the sake of getting along with them and all those negative kinds of social pressures. Uh, and I think that you see it most clearly through examples, really. Uh, so, and, and enduring the difficulty of going after a subject, that's another sign of it. So one of the one of the great examples, I think, is uh, John Baker, uh, who um, was an office worker in Essex, uh, got very interested in peregrine falcons, uh, loved poetry, never went to university. And he really studied peregrine falcons. He studied them for 10 years on bicycles. He was hard, uh, short sighted, um, it's various physical ailments, 10 years studying birds. And then he wrote this wonderful book called The Peregrine. It's a you know, British classic in uh, raptor studies, <laughs> raptor literature. Uh, that's the kind of thing I mean, where someone is, they're doing it for themselves. They're doing it for their own development as a human being. Uh, and they're pursuing some subject right to the bottom, wherever it leads them. So real learning requires uh, abandonment in some way. You don't quite know what you're going to find. You're taking a risk. It's very different. One thing that's helpful is to think too, it's very different from retrieving information. We tend to think of learning as, uh, I want to know something, you know, Google X, <laughs> I've got the information, it's done. But if you think about where all that information that's collected in the internet comes from, it comes from serious investigation of some piece of reality and involves being sensitive to all of its contours and responding when it resists. Uh, and, tr you know, accepting that you may have gotten it wrong at the start. All of these are marks of, of real learning, of learning for its own sake. 
So one of the other things that I think is really interesting about your book is it's very opposite in a pandemic world uh, of lockdown where people, in a way, couldn't go out and complained bitterly about the stress. And there were obviously stresses of people losing their jobs and, and, and terrible things like that. But in a way, what I think has become really interesting about your book is that it was a signal that we've lost the intellectual life because people just couldn't cope with um, the fact that they had time to themselves. And I mean, to, to, to genuine intellectuals or introverts, um, this was a wonderful moment to sit down and read. Um, and you give some wonderful examples of people who were in prison. You give an example of a mathematician who was in prison and said afterwards, I did my best work when I was in prison. And uh, actually I'm looking forward to being put back in prison so I can continue proper work um, away from the distractions of life. So I think that what I looked um, to the rest of the world as the stress, there was a lot of, as a psychiatrist, a lot of questions, how do we cope with, with lockdown? Whereas to the genuine intellectual, this is not a problem. And in a way, what it exposes people's unease with just being left to their own devices, left to their own minds. And I thought your book was a brilliant expose of the fact that actually in a pandemic world, what, what the pandemic world uh, illuminated was um, the great difficulty people have just being left to themselves with the genuine intellectual is not frightened by being left with their own minds but but again what are your thoughts uh, so uh, a few things. One is that of what you're saying reminds me of a saying of Pascal you know that there's nothing more frightening to a person than to be left alone in an empty room and so he wrote that a long time ago. Um, I think there are a few different things going on at once. I myself uh, had quite a lot of trouble concentrating in quarantine, uh, partly because of what you mentioned, the anxiety about the future, uh, the worries about the economic situation, uh, the fears for my own health and the health of others, the uncertainty and so on. So I think high anxiety is really an obstacle to uh, the kind of contemplative learning I'm interested in. But I think there's something else. And I think it was always difficult. It was difficult in Pascal's time but we face another difficulty, another obstacle, and we face it whether we're rich or poor or anxious or not anxious. And that is the internet um, is really, can really be destructive. It can be used for learning, but we basically have huge companies who profit off of uh, taking our attention from us. And that plays on a weakness in us, but it's also important to recognize that it's not entirely our fault. That is, people are making money off of our being distracted. So you, we, we have to try to find a way individually to manage our distractions, but also as a community to find ways to help each other live healthier lives. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in your work as a psychiatrist. There's, there's uh, quite a lot of uh, difficulty with online distractions, particularly. Uh, it adds a different dimension to whatever difficulty the people of the past had with with sitting and studying and following a problem through to the bottom uh, because there's always available uh, 10 trillion distractions at your fingertips. Um, but you also talk about the intellectual life as a kind of therapy. There's a sense in which at the heart of all therapy is the ability to think, to think clearly and to think clearly about oneself, uh, which can, can be quite tricky. But this notion of thinking clearly as being at the heart of therapy or the therapeutic endeavor, I felt was was in your book. And one of the problems that therapists have is, is getting people to think uh, as opposed to just wanting a pill or a very quick solution. In other words, to think their way through a problem. What's fascinating 
and I, I, I even when I meet people in my private practice who've been to elite educational institutions, how they want to stampede or gallop to the answer without understanding that the first thing is to be able to think clearly about oneself. So the, the notion of, of thought as an intellectual tool um, where some people can, can think more clearly about things, which is at the heart of the intellectual life, which is learning to think, is again, I think, I think something you're trying to say in the book. I think that's right. Uh, it's definitely closely related to therapy, that is thinking and learning, in that it's the way I the way I put it slightly different than yours, but I agree with what you say that it's 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 a way of facing reality. Uh, that's what thinking and learning are. They're ways of facing reality, and facing reality always requires discipline. It's never entirely comfortable. There's always things in us that resist. So intellectual life. Uh, as well as other kinds of disciplines, uh, athletics or manual labor or things like that, it, they accustom us to finding the contours of the reality of something, the truth about something, and getting used to letting go of what we wanted to be true or what we wanted to be real. And that's, of course, obviously very valuable for something like therapy. Uh, I think perhaps the other thing that really is um, connected to therapy, too, is that I think intellectual life, and I, I give examples in the book of this, it can be a source of transformation, of personal growth and transformation. It can shift values. It can change the way you see your community. It can um, allow you to confront things about yourself that otherwise you couldn't. And in that sense, it's very much part of the same project as therapy, as it's a, it's a human development project. It's a way of becoming a fuller, richer, more authentic human being. Um, and if we lose sight of that, it seems to me we've we've lost sight of something that's crucial and uh, that we, we're not going to be able to do well without once it's gone. But you also refer in the book to the notion that the pursuit of learning isn't just an introverted activity. There's a sense in which it leads to wider or deeper engagement with the world around us, that we, we see for the first time uh, or hold the world in true awe if we can develop some sense of an understanding of it, in the sense that, for example... Um, I was listening to a lecture about why um, leaves are green. Why, why is vegetation green? Why that color? Why not any other color? And there was some complicated stuff to do with the chemistry. Mm. Of, uh, um, but in fact, it's still a mystery as to why green. Um, uh, I'm sure some botanist is going to write in and explain. It's not that mm -hmm. much of a mystery. But but to become curious about why is stuff green when, we, when, we, when we're walking through foliage and to pursue that and try to develop an understanding leads to a deeper engagement and an awe of the world. And if you don't have a life of learning, you, you are not really seeing the world or engaging with it in a way that life is less well lived because you're not really engaging in all the fascinating things that the world has to offer. Again, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, so I think on the one hand, that's absolutely right. Learning about the world can be, it's one of the main routes to appreciating it. So, uh, and this is, of course, is true if you ever talk to any kind of scientist, they often appreciate things about their subject of study. Uh, and if you learn from them or with them or alongside them, you too appreciate things about the world and see how wondrous they are and how awesome and how worthy of admiration. I also think that even dark subjects, uh, they're also worthy of learning about, if only because we are seeing them then more clear-sightedly. We're not hiding from them anymore. We're not uh, deluding ourselves or denying their existence. It has to be handled carefully. Uh, 
you know, some of us can't handle emotional overload, but you do want to be able to face also the darkness and the truth about things. Uh, for instance, the if you read a lot of history, you know about the terrible things that human beings have done to one another. It's important to face that, to have a sense of what kind of thing a human being can do and may do still in the future. Uh, it helps you to navigate the world and it helps you to be more clear-headed about what, what, what's right in front of you. So again, coming back to the virus, the other interesting thing about what happened with the pandemic was um, people had to watch the news to hear what the government had to say and the government gave advice or um, instructions. And the true intellectual thought a bit more deeply about what they were being told and maybe thought critically about it. Um, and what got exposed is vast ways of the population were quite willing to be blindly obedient to whatever they were being told. And this was a very interesting phenomenon because it was a once in a century event and um, there was no kind of rehearsal for it. So people were left some um, major decisions to make about how they were going to respond. So I thought it was quite an interesting test case for the lack of ability for large ways of the population to think critically about what they're being told and, and just simply to want a very quick answer. Again, what are your thoughts? I, I saw exactly the same thing and I, I found it very disturbing for just the same reason. That is uh, part of what an education is supposed to do for people and part of what the benefits of widespread education of the kind we've had for the past hundred years is to make free independent people uh, who are comfortable using their own judgment uh, and taking responsibility for that judgment. Now, that's not to say there's no role for expertise, but of course, every expert has to be judged by uh, the person who's receiving the expertise. So I, it wasn't just the inability to, to distinguish good advice from bad advice. There's a kind of childishness in expecting authorities to tell you exactly what to do. And if they don't tell you exactly what to do, you're angry and aggrieved and you hold them at fault for it. Um, and especially in something like this, where I think it's pretty evident, the experts too don't know what's going on. Um, they differ with one another. There's imperfect information. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we're all left with our own judgment to live by. And we don't have any alternative to that. So I, I really, um, I fear for our, our, our communities if, um, if we expect our central authorities to, to tell us exactly what to do. And if we prefer that to taking in whatever information we can, uh, using our judgment as best as we see fit, and then acting freely on the basis of our own choices and taking some responsibility for those choices. So I, that's one of the things I think uh, lear learning for its own sake is is meant to do to 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 help. I mean, the liberal arts, as we call them, uh, they're supposed to be the arts that make people free. Uh, that's one of the reasons why they were given exclusively to elites, <laughs> and because we wanted only some people to be free. And then that was the reason why they were democratized because we wanted freedom to be more broadly distributed. So I I agree a hundred percent, and I find it disturbing. And I I do hope we find a way to bring back uh, the the value of the critical thinker. Uh, and the independent judger and the taker of responsibility for, for ordinary life. 
But again, isn't one of the problems with the pursuit of the intellectual life is it lands you in trouble with people around you because people say stuff and then you challenge them or you question it. It makes you also basically, frankly, unemployable because managers say do that and you go, but why? <laughs> why are we doing it that way? And so um, I want to now attack the book a little bit, if you don't mind me doing Please so. Please do. Please to, do. To, to say that. There's a there's a lot of problems with the intellectual life. I'm not obviously against it. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. But you've got to be you've got in a way you've got to be taught how to handle it. You've got to be taught when to play dumb, uh, because you're going to have to do that to have a job. But basically, a, a large amount of the time. Um, I remember at the very first psychiatric hospital I worked as a junior doctor. At the end of the day, I wandered around slightly nonplussed, saying to the doctors and nurses, "Did anyone actually get better?" Because I'm a little bit worried that we don't seem to be helping anyone get better. And I got very blank looks. You're going to land yourself in trouble as an intellectual if you ask questions and if you question and challenge, which is what the intellectual life inevitably ends up doing. So you have to learn alongside being taught um, what the life of learning is. You have to be taught when to play dumb. And again, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I do recognize what you're saying. I think part of my hope is that the, the more widespread intellectual life is, the more common it becomes, the more honored it is, which varies in times and places, and it varies in historical periods and so on. The more valued it is, I would think, the more hopeful it would be that, for instance, the person who's designing a workplace or the person who's running a workplace knows how important it is knows that the people who work there need to be engaged in what they're doing, that the people who work there, for instance, are often a resource uh, for insight as to how things are going or how things are working or for new directions. So you can generate a kind of ideal workplace, ideal work environments, ideal school environments. You may not be able to achieve them. And if you can't, then you you have to do just what you're saying. You have to make prudential judgments about when to be quiet, you know, and when to speak up. And I have to tell you, and my colleagues will uh, will back me up on this. I I definitely veer towards the not being quiet enough advice. Um, I I speak my mind uh, to a fault, and I often uh, cause difficulties that way. Um, so I. And I do think that if I were in a, a profession that was a bit more ruthless, uh, I would be risking my job to do that. Uh, so I think part of what has to go along with it, and I think it can help part of one of the reasons why I filled the book with examples of some of them real human beings, some of them fictional, is I think you have to look at models uh, for um, how people conducted themselves with their integrity and with their intelligence and, you know, they often don't end up well. I mean, Socrates, who's our great founder uh, of, you know, the great, the first public intellectual, I mean, he's executed by the Athenians. <laughs> so, or, uh, you know, Malcolm X, who's one of the examples, this great uh, Black American activist who educated himself in prison, he was assassinated and more than one person wanted him dead. Uh, so I'm not holding out martyrdom as some kind of ideal. But I do think that um, there are high stakes to being uh, someone who really cares about the truth and someone who's willing to follow it wherever it goes. And it's one of the reasons why I think serious reading and serious learning has to really be a lifelong undertaking because these kinds of struggles you're talking about, when do I talk? Who do I say it to? Who can I talk to? 
who can I speak freely to? These questions are not going to go away, and and we need a, a a healthy diet of examples and ideas for for how to live this way, um, in a way that's not imprudent, uh, but also that uh, can use what the gifts that we have to make the world a better place. I mean, that's part of what we want, right? I mean, we we need psychiatrists to be thinking, "Wow, do we make people better?" Uh, that's a great question. If if psychiatrists don't think about that, who knows psychiatry? Then I don't know who will. Uh, so it's it's crucially important to find a way, whatever way we can in our circumstances, to safeguard uh, free inquiry and real learning. But you but you sound very optimistic because you say you you're saying that you think the intellectual life is spreading. I I need to um, challenge you a little bit on that point. <laughs> did and I that, say that? Did I say that actually? <laughs> I think you did say that. So, um, <laughs> We, we live at a particular moment with, with statues being pulled down and um, racist, the word racist being daubed on, on the base of statues like Churchill and so on. So we, we live in a moment where one um, stands in, in grave danger conversationally of stepping on a landmine by um, engaging in conversations where conversations are being shut down. Certain things are being ruled out as being even a conversation. So uh, the famous philosopher Mill, uh, in a famous essay on liberty, voiced the point that it is dangerous to ban or exclude no matter how reprehensible or, or awful you may find a particular idea. He said that in a pluralistic society, and, and, and I'm nervous because you probably know better than, than I do what he said, in a genuinely pluralistic society, we have to allow all flowers to bloom. But that doesn't mean you don't engage with the argument with people you might feel have reprehensible views, but you don't shut them down. You don't ban them from speaking. You allow free thought and then you engage in the argument. And that's not what's happening at the moment. What's happening at the moment is um, statues are being pulled down because certain ideas are just being ruled out of court altogether. So they can't be part of discourse. Was Miller saying everything should be part of discourse? Uh, over to you. What are your thoughts? Uh, so, uh just to clarify, uh, I, and I, of course, share Mill's point of view. I think it was very wise. Um, there's nothing more attractive um, than a forbidden thought or a forbidden work of art or a forbidden uh, figure. Um, so I'm definitely concerned that we're making um, things which we really should uh, be concerned about very attractive to people who might want to think freely. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. So I think the thousand flowers bloom is is absolutely right. Uh, now, I, when I, I don't know if I said intellectual life is spreading. It's It's spread since... Uh, say the 18th century, uh, I think literacy rates have gone up, or beginning of the beginning of the 20th, even it's spread. I do think and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that it is especially endangered now. It's endangered by um, universities treating themselves as corporate institutions. It's endangered by uh, the materialism and status seeking, which has infected everything. It's endangered by the tech companies who sell our attention for huge bundles of cash. And it's also endangered by what you're talking about, um, this kind of uh, rigid way of thinking about social justice and how to undertake it. So, uh, you know, we, again, um, we have to look for literature, for resources. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about is honestly uh, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, which uh, many intellectuals endured uh, for decades upon decades. Uh, they gave us their writings. 
Um, and I don't think, I'm not a declinist. I'm optimistic enough to think this, that I don't think things inevitably get worse and worse and worse. I think sometimes things get very bad and then get better again. So I'm not a doom and gloom person about the present, but I do think it's reasonable to think that things will get worse uh, and that things are pretty bad right now. And if that's the case, well, we need to um, read the read the great Soviet literature uh, and find ways of passing on in secret uh, real thinking and real learning. I think what, what sometimes can sound like optimism from me is uh, it's pragmatism. It's we've got to we can't settle for calling doom and gloom. Uh, we can't indulge in calling doom and gloom uh, and and despair. We have to think this is this is not disposable. Intellectual life is not disposable. It's not part of human life that we can do without. So those of us who care about it uh, have to fight for it in and we have to be ingenious and we have to um, work hard at it. But but uh, but we have to do something. In other words, it's it's not enough just to decry uh, the bad state of things. It, it We've got to build things uh, somehow or other. And I don't know exactly what it looks like. And I think it's different in different places and it's different depending on how things develop and so on. But I think we've got to be pragmatic. We have to think about what can be done and when and how and and so on. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll I'm running out of time a little bit, but I want to go back to Socrates because you mentioned him. And again, yes. you, you will, I'm nervous again because you will know the story better than I do. But the story about his uh, eventual execution at the hands of the Athenians, um, he's tried, it is said, for corrupting famously the youth of Athens and for impiety. And one of the charges, um, as inevitably is going to be the case uh, if you have a ruling class and everyone's going around, well, saying Socrates is the wisest man in Greece. That's a bit of a threat if you're the ruler of Greece. So um, Socrates is a threat. And the charge is that he is arrogant. Um, and uh, apparently they go to consult the Oracle of Delphi. And the Oracle of Delphi is asked, who is the wisest man in Greece? And the Oracle says, well, Socrates, of course. So they come back to the courtroom, the prosecution triumphant. But the defenders of Socrates say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. The Socrates never claims to know anything. Socrates just questions everything. And basically, Socrates claims no knowledge whatsoever. And um, what makes Socrates the wise is that he knows when he doesn't know. So at the heart of um, the intellectual life is, is a comfortableness with the notion of not knowing. How do you recognize a true intellectual? Okay, it's not someone who has a fancy degree. Okay, it's not someone who uses big words. Who is it? Uh, it is just the person you're talking about. It's the person who conducts themselves with humility and eagerness to learn. Um, and that's how you tell them. That's how you tell it among students, among colleagues, among random people you meet in the street, among taxi drivers. Uh, that's how you know uh, what when someone has the real thing. And that can be a test for ourselves, too. Um, I used to discover when I was writing papers uh, for graduate school, you know, whenever I got very rhetorical, you know, I was really in love with what I was saying. It just sounded so good. I had to stop myself because it always turned out later that uh, I was covering over some hole in the argument. You know, that really wasn't wasn't supposed to be there. So you, it's self-examination, too. I think that, um, yes, acknowledging ignorance is key, absolutely key and key to the point of my book. And I also want to say, since we're on a podcast and since everyone's having trouble concentrating, you know, Plato's Apology, which is where his Socrates' speech at the trial, it's about 20 pages long. It's very short. 
And uh, Socrates is very irritating, and it raises all the questions about whether he really seems like a corrupter of the youth, whether he really is good for society, whether he's admirable, whether he's annoying. So, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, pick up a copy of the Apology and uh, get together with a couple of friends, read it and talk about it and try to figure out what's all about, what's going on with that. It's very doable uh, and uh, and a great text for just thinking about all the questions we've been talking about in this podcast. Yes, I mean, uh, it is said that as he drank the hemlock and began to, it's a very moving um, bit, uh, he begins to struggle to walk around the cell. His, his friends have come to him in the cell. His friends obviously offered to spring him from the cell and bribe the guards, so freedom was possible, but Socrates refused to accept that route. Um, it is said that he did say, listen, don't get sad, because I'm finally, you know, going to die and meet gods, meet the gods, and have a proper conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a fantastic put down right at the end. All his, his poor friends who were right in the prison cell sobbing with grief <laughs> for the poor guy. I thought it was a fantastic. Yeah, don't, don't uh, grieve for me. I, I'm going to a better party, actually. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually learned something. No, it's amazing. The dialogues are incredible. I mean, there's such a wealth of, uh, of hilarious drama and understanding and reflection. Um, and, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I do think I don't I'm not a big fan of Socrates' the accounts he gives of the afterlife, but I do think that it helps in these endeavor to think 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 about the big things that you might be after, you know, uh, truth, uh, goodness, beauty, God, whatever you want to call it. Something that's big and that might be transcendent and that's beyond uh, all that we understand. Um, that's also a big motivator, I think, for for uh, being a real learner and and enduring all the things that we endure these days. So um, one one final point, um, in a way, which I, I think comes through from the book, and I, I think it's a wonderful expose, maybe, of the corruption of the standard academic life, is kind of what you're saying is um, you meet someone and, and you may be in awe slightly of their elite education they've had or the fantastic way in which they can string sentences together. Um, but don't be afraid to, to question them or don't be afraid of the idea that... Um, it's not embodied in, in, in a fancy degree, as you put it, or, or an elite institution. It's basically life as it is lived. Um, and again, in my private practice, I meet many people who've been to elite educational institutions. They've got the degree. They've got the diploma. It's hanging on the wall. They've got the credentials on the CV. And you say to them, you know, what did you study at Oxford? And they say, oh, I did English literature. And then you say, well, have you read any of those books since and they give you a very blank look like uh, it's a really dumb question why would i be doing that now <laughs> um, um and so um education is a lifelong process it doesn't really matter what degree you got in the past it is it is lived at, in the moment and it's a continuing process so um what about this notion that that it's never too late and it's really the intellectual life is whatever you're doing right now it doesn't really matter what you did five years ago, or what education institution you went to, or what grade you got at school. It is never too late to uh, engage in the life of learning. Uh, it's absolutely true. It is never too late. Uh, there is no such thing as someone who, in principle, just can't do it. Uh, learning is a process. It's movement from one point to another. I tell this to my students all the time. They have trouble understanding it, but it's true. So whatever your starting point is, you can move from that point progress and learn. Uh, there's no fixed um, set of learning achievements set out there in space, which somehow when you knock them, a bell goes off. 
uh, everyone's in a way in the same position. The the super hotshot professor who's been studying something his or her whole life, and someone who's picked up a book for the first time. You're all we're all out of our depth. Uh, we're all swimming in waters uh, which we can't we don't really know where they're going and and uh, what the endpoint looks like. And a real conversation with one another about serious questions and real interest in learning. Uh, that's for anybody. Approach fearlessly. Uh, anyone who you think can teach teach you something. That's something Socrates can teach us also. So, Zena, thank you very much indeed. And we've run out of time. Just to repeat the name of the book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of Intellectual Life, published by Princeton University Press. Zena Hintz, thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much for the conversation. I loved it.